The opioid crisis has had severe impacts on New Hampshire as well as the rest of the country. I'm joined by Chief Judge Joseph LaPlante of the U.S. District Court of New Hampshire and Chief Jonathan Hertig of the U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services for the District of New Hampshire. This is the UNH Law Podcast. Learn more about the law school and apply by visiting law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the guest or hosts and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. So thank you too so much for joining me today and participating in today's panel organized by the law school's Rudman Center and the UNH Institute for Health Policy and Practice. Very briefly to start off with, uh, since a lot of our audience aren't attorneys, what are your roles with the U.S. District Court in New Hampshire, starting with Chief Judge LaPlante? Well, I am a uh, judge that presides at the United States District Court, uh, part of the federal court system, which is comprised at the top of the United States Supreme Court. There are the circuit courts of appeals and the the uh, 11 circuits around the country. And then each district, like the state of New Hampshire, has a district court or a trial court. I am one of three active judges that sit at the trial court. I handle civil and criminal cases. We also have two senior judges that work full-time, uh, pretty close to full-time. Uh, so we have uh, uh, five uh, judges in the court plus two magistrate judges, as well as uh, former U.S. Supreme Court Justice Souter, who um, who has chambers in our courthouse and who sits and uh, hears cases on the United States Court of Appeals, the court, the appeals court above our court for the First Circuit. Our court handles civil and criminal cases that have federal jurisdiction um, and operates uh, in the traditional way people are accustomed to seeing trial courts operate in television and movies. We, we hold jury trials. We hold hearings. Um, there's a grand jury that meets in our courthouse and issues indictments and criminal cases, and those criminal cases are brought before our court. Um, and then people bring lawsuits, people and institutions bring civil lawsuits in our court, and we preside over those. Um, many of those uh, criminal cases, of course, involve uh, drugs and drug trafficking or crimes uh, triggered by or precipitated by um, drug use and substance use. And uh, one component of our court, there are three components, the mm-hmm. district court itself, which I just described to you, the bankruptcy court, which handles bankruptcy cases, and then thirdly is the Office of U.S. Probation. They supervise those who have been released from federal prison, and they also uh, supervise those who have been charged with federal crimes and um, who are released pending trial. They'll be under the supervision of U.S. Probation, and our chief U.S. Probation officer is with me here today, John Hertig. Yeah, so what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Uh, Well, I'm responsible for the administration of our office, who has a couple of primary functions. Uh, We handle investigative functions at both the pretrial or bail stage, as well as the pre-sentence stage. And then we handle supervisory uh, responsibility at, again, the the bail stage and then the post-conviction stage. Uh, We have a staff of about uh, 27 individuals that are responsible for providing these services uh, throughout the state. And I view my role as putting my officers in a position to do their jobs. Um, and ultimately, that involves protection of the community. Now, the the focus of today's panel was on um, the opioid epidemic that's going across the country right now. In the dist- federal district courts, have you, have you really seen that increase over the last decade of, of crimes happening and these people with drug addictions entering your court? Well, what we've seen um, is an increase in drug cases involving opiates and opioids. Mm -hmm. That means heroin, fentanyl, and even the prescription drugs like like oxycodone. So the answer is yes, we've seen an increase. And of course, we've seen an increase in crimes um, precipitated by um, substance use um, involving theft, property crimes, robberies, drug trafficking, weapons offenses even. One... one, um, 
one offense that people um, routinely undertake when they are addicted is uh, buying guns for people who are not permitted to buy guns um, because of criminal records or other barriers to lawful gun ownership. They sometimes um, retain buyers in New Hampshire to make straw purchases for them. And with some frequency, those people are um, drug addicts and substance users who trade um, their ability to buy weapons for weapons, traffickers and criminals um, for drugs or the money to buy drugs. Yeah, I so, guarantee a lot of people don't think about that step. Like it's not, it's an entire ecosystem of transportation, buying and using of these substances. No question. I don't know the, I don't know if uh, Chief Herdig has a, a number in mind in terms of the rate of increase. Yeah. You know, what we've also seen in terms of the, the increase is really the increase in the severity of, an, of addiction. Um, as the judge indicated, we've, we've always seen these these types of, of crimes, but they, they have started to tick up. We have about 50 percent of the prosecutions that we, we see are for drug-related offenses, and the majority of those now are for opioid-related offenses, whereas historically it may have been more cocaine, marijuana, things of that nature. So opioid abuse has really uh, taken over as a primary uh, area of concern for mine, particularly as it relates to the people under supervision and the types of substance use that they're experiencing. It must be much more intense with regards to withdrawals and people on and off of the substances. Uh, very much so. I and mean, people spend a considerable, considerable amount of time simply avoiding to be sick. Mm. And then also, the intensity of the services that we provide also have to be much more significant. So we're talking about longer durations of treatment and more intense treatment to help those individuals. This kind of leads into the laser docket, which uh, it, it was fascinating. I mean, where did this uh, program originate? Well, the program originated in our court, but we certainly uh, in our court did not invent problem-solving courts or alternative sentencing courts which is what laser docket is. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a program administered through the court to identify certain cases, certain offenders or accused offenders um, whose drug habits, addiction, drug use have contributed to their criminality. And they rather than um, immediate disposition to sentencing after a guilty plea or a trial, they're identified for a program that can take over a year to complete. It requires four phases of services and treatment and very intensive supervision by the court and by um, the U.S. Probation Office. Um, it's organized around a team. There's participants from the defense bar, prosecution, the U.S. Attorney's Office, United States Probation, a drug, uh, a LADAC, which is a drug counselor, a drug professional, and of course the judge. Um, they meet weekly, discuss the participants in the program, and then hold a court session where each week, each of the participants in the program um, addresses the court and has a conversation with the judge based on what came up in the team meeting about that person's recovery, how they're doing um, in a number of areas. Our program is called LASER, L-A-S-E-R, for law-abiding, sober, employed, and responsible. Um, it was one of the earlier drug courts or alternative sentencing problem-solving courts in the federal system. There are many now, um, but it's not. it was not even a new concept even when we originated ours in New Hampshire, which I believe was either 2010 or 2011. There were many in many states. There were a couple in New Hampshire, and they were all over the country. Um, there's a, a healthy academic literature and empirical study literature on drug courts and alternative sentencing courts, um, and our process in New Hampshire 
has probably um, involved, I think, around fifty-five or sixty participants, maybe uh, maybe a little over sixty right. yes. over its um, over its lifetime. And we've got about a fifty percent graduation rate. People who've successfully completed the program, um, those who have completed the program, have managed to um, avoid a federal prison sentence. Um, others haven't been as lucky who have not completed the program, but it's a it's a basically it's a treatment program that's offered to certain offenders identified by the United States Attorney's Office for treatment and supervision as opposed to incarceration. They must be very vocal advocates of that there's a way out also from the drug addiction and the crime. Have you found that? I think there is, but I think it depends on where they are in their recovery Mm. as well as where they are in the program. People's success ebbs and flows uh, throughout their time in the program. And some people go through it more easily than others. Other people struggle uh, more. So it really depends um, on each individual. But I do think that one thing that would be consistent, uh, regardless of whether you're talking to a graduate or someone that didn't graduate, is this overwhelming feeling of feeling supported by the program and that the program really does have their best interest um, in mind. And you, it was brought up during the panel today, and I even heard it uh, last year when we had a panel focused on New Hampshire's courts, that it feels like a family, like this group really works closely together, and the person that is going through recovery is really reliant on this group to, to keep them going. Do you feel that's the case? I do. You know, I, I was the one that made the reference to a, um, a family sort of dynamic and there is a family dynamic, but of course it's serious business. Oh, yeah. Um, um, it, it tries to bring some positivity to, um, the offenders recovery. Um, but there's a, well, while there might be something you might, that might look like love. It's very tough love. <laughs> They're there for a reason. It's not because they just randomly decided they want to be clean. They're, there's a reason why they entered the court system. Right. It's, it's part of, it's part of the criminal justice system. And to, to be, to be a participant in the program, one must have already entered a guilty plea to a federal um, felony, oh, wow. and it's usually a drug felony. Yeah, definitely. Not always, but usually. One you brought up during the panel also the the cost effectiveness issue. You must feel like as expensive as this program is, it's definitely worth it in order to get these people out of the system and recovered. I do think it. Um, there has not been a systematic evaluation of our program yet. Yeah. We've done some internal evaluations, and we do it we do it almost continuously, but. We've undertaken internal formal evaluations of it, but um, and and we view it as uh, effective, both cost effective and effective, and from the standpoint of outcomes. But um, I can't say we have undergone a empirical study yet by a professional, and it's something we've been talking about, and perhaps uh, we may undertake that. I don't know what the chief thinks. Yeah, far more anecdotal information mm-hmm. at this point. I'll share a quick story. On the way over here, uh, one of the former participants and graduates was walking into the mm-hmm. courthouse, and he was uh, informing us that his mother passed away the other day. Now, one thing important to know is that this is an individual whose history was littered with multiple incarcerations and a, and a lifelong of substance use. And through that time, his relationship with his mother deteriorated to the point where they were estranged. Through his participation in laser and ultimately uh, obtaining and maintaining his sobriety, he was able to repair that once fractured relationship. Unfortunately, his mother was diagnosed with cancer while he was in the program, 
Um, but because he was able to repair that relationship, he was able to support her and be with her throughout the process and then ultimately was with her when she passed the other day. And he spoke about his ability to do that and what that meant to him. So I'm not sure how that story would register if you're looking at something in terms of cost effectiveness, but it sure means a lot to me in terms of why we do the program. That does, but of course, that doesn't answer the questions of cost effectiveness. And um, at some point, I mean, look, there, there's a healthy literature out there, academic literature, scientific um, opinion literature about the effectiveness of problem solving courts and drug courts and alternative sentencing courts. Um, and um, eventually, I think there's going to be more solid evidence. The evidence so far, though, is on both sides. Um, some that some that are critical of the effectiveness and cost effectiveness of the um, of such programs and courts, drug courts, problem solving courts, others that support its effectiveness. Um, but it's an important public policy question because we are we are not only dealing with important um, important issues that inform the lives of American citizens, but also how we spend the public's money. And those are important. Now, how important is the um, the leadership coming from the president and the Department of Justice in these programs being able to take place? Well, the judiciary is um, independent from the executive branch, and we actually operate in a decentralized system. Mm -hmm. So although we receive guidance out of our administrative office um, in Washington, we have the ability and the freedom to operate um, independently, uh, based on what we view as the pressing issues locally. Um, and, the, and I think it's a good thing because what's happening here in New Hampshire may differ from Chicago or San Diego or West Virginia or anywhere else. So it really gives us the freedom to be able to apply our resources the way that we think it's most effective. Obviously, decisions that are made by the DOJ impact ultimately who we see. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as our day-to-day -day operation, we have the ability to operate um, in a decentralized way. But one of the participants in the program is the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is the part of the United States Department of Justice overseen currently by U.S. Attorney General uh, Jeffrey S Jeff Sessions. And of course, he's part of the Trump administration. We started the program during the Obama administration. And um, the, that was the DOJ under Attorney General Eric Holder. Um, the U.S. Attorney's Office took a very close, hard look at the proposal before approving it and joining the program. They, the program can't exist as it's currently constructed without the U.S. Attorney's Office, the executive branch involvement, because they, um, under our program rules, are required to approve any offender to enter the program. Now, and so th they have an important role. There was a question uh, after the uh, 2016 election about whether the Department of Justice would continue to support um, alternative sentencing courts, problem-solving courts, drug courts, and the like. Um, thus far, our U.S. Attorney's Office under uh, AG Sessions has been um, equally supportive and participated with equal intensity and enthusiasm with um, the laser docket program. So, um, so far, that has not been a change between the two administrations. Is there anything else you wanted to bring up about this program? No, just that our, the United States district courtrooms are public places. Um, our laser docket session occurs every Wednesday. If any member of the public uh, is interested, they can come every Wednesday at about 
to be safe, 2.30. If you come about 2.30, you'll certainly be there when it starts, the, the public session, the courtroom part. It might start anytime between 2.30 and 3.30, but usually around 2.45 or 3 o'clock, and you'll you'll see the laser docket, a drug court uh, in action. The, the team meeting part, um, which happens immediately before, is not open to the public. That's a meeting between the prosecutors involved, the defense lawyers, the judge, the U.S. probation officers, and our um, drug treatment professional, our drug counselor. Those are private. But the, the courtroom part of the proceedings are public, and any Wednesday, 2.30, 2.45 or so, uh, anybody can come watch. Uh, I would just uh, applaud the law school for sponsoring today's panel. I think it was uh, very informative, very helpful, and uh, I think we got just as much out of it listening to some of the questions posed by those in the audience. Yeah, Dean Carpenter and uh, Professor Hodder, um Excellent, excellent advocates for public policy debates and bringing programs like this to the campus, I think, is um, a wonderful thing and very much needed. More information about the laser docket is available in the episode's description. Today's episode is presented by the UNHL Health Law and Policy Program, Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice Leadership and Public Service, and the UNH Institute for Health Policy and Practice. Links to learn more about these are available in the episode description and at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire.